Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the iCast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. Spring is my favourite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 43 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, November the 22nd. First, I'll be talking to George Simalis, the CEO of IQ Group Global a group of companies dedicated to developing early-stage bioscience assets. And then I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering, looking at the latest figures for Australia's unemployment and wages growth. But now, let's talk to George Simalis. George, let's start off by asking, how does IQ Group Global contribute to Australia's history of biotech innovation? What are you guys doing in that space? What we basically do as a group of companies is we find fund and basically uh, develop biotech uh, assets. So we're a consortium of companies who work together synergistically to find, fund and develop bioscience discoveries. Australian discoveries, I might add, is our focus. And uh, we take them from intellectual property and we convert them into life-changing medical innovations. Of course, delivering to the patients and delivering to the economy in this particular case and to all stakeholders involved. So what assets have you developed? Well, the foremost asset is the Australian asset is the biosensor, which which was basically an invention that that with the help of the university, Newcastle University here in New South Wales, we have now converted into a saliva glucose biosensor. So what it means is it will be able to measure glucose. Diabetics will change the way they measure glucose through finger pricks by inserting this biosensor 
on their tongue, resting it on their tongue, and it will be able to measure their glucose in saliva. This is the first meaningful change in finger prick blood testing or in, in diabetic monitoring, if you like, because it takes the invasive component out of the testing equation. That's the first one. Then from this, we're developing other diagnostic tests to be used by general practitioners and specialists and pharmacists, 130 tests in total, which basically can measure biochemistry. So, so if, you, if you want to do a cholesterol test, you'll be able to do it on your own then. Uh, they measure hormones, they measure tumor markers, and uh, other relevant parameters, especially immunological tests. It's basically taking away the need to send your blood or your sample to the laboratory to, to be tested for biochemical parameters or, or other diagnostic parameters. That's, that's the first uh, test. We're about to launch in the next 18 months, we're contemplating launch in the APAC region to begin with, which is Australia, Japan, China, Malaysia, Indonesia, and some other smaller countries, 37 in total. And uh, then uh, we're launching subsequently to in the US and in the European markets. I mean, these are, these are global products, aren't they? Of course they are. Of course they are. They, 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 this is patent protected for 20 years. We acquired this from, from Newcastle University three years ago and continued the development with them, and we continue to work with them. But they're global in scope, they're globally patent protected, and they're globally unique. How do you find working with universities? How, what are the challenges there? All right. I have found that uh, we actually have a comparison between working with Australian universities, American universities, and Canadian universities. Uh, I have found that, that Australian universities are a bit slow to move, and uh, sometimes they become very political as well. There's too many stakeholders that need to make a very simple decision when compared to the U.S. universities and, and uh, Canadian universities, but especially the U.S. universities. So with a U.S. university, the deal-making process is over in two, three weeks' time. Here it could take you a year. A year? A year, a year, yes, correct. There's some, some conversations that we commenced, and then the, the academic who was responsible for the research and development left the university and went to another university, and, and, and the conversation uh, after one and a half, two years was just, was just uh, dormant. There was nothing happening. Opportunity lost. So, I mean, in that case, would you continue with that academic or would you continue with that university? Well, in, in some cases where there's a team involved, we will continue with the university, uh, although we're not really happy to have lost the lead. Right. In other cases where there is no team or the, the, the project has been becoming dormant, we'll just walk away. So, I mean, what is it about Australia that uh, is so good in biotech? Well, I think we have top-notch universities, first of all. We have excellent researchers and we have a government which has been funding research to come to the stage where the IP gets registered, but that's when the research spend also becomes quite intense. So uh, what happens is that's where it drops off. That's where the private sector has to come in and has to throw money at, at this intellectual property, including that research and development team, and to, to, to further move it along, translating it into a useful medical tool or uh, a medical innovation that will actually 
have an application for the patients. You see, it's not enough to have a fancy mechanism of action or some tremendous, exciting science behind this molecule or medical device if it doesn't do something equally tremendous for the patients. And there's many discoveries like that, which are really great for scientific interest, are really great to observe, but then you need to ask yourself, well, what does it do for the patients? Does it do anything? Does it take out anything of the current diagnostic process or the therapeutic process? For instance, if it's a cancer diagnostic, you ask yourself, does it, uh, will it actually eliminate the biopsy, so to speak, or will it eliminate uh, one, uh, a CT scan in the diagnostic process? Uh, usually they don't. Usually they just add on and to, to, to make a more precise diagnosis. But at the end of the day, you still have to do a biopsy. Well, I have to ask you, what are the big challenges that the biotech industry is facing? I think everybody will say to you uh, uh, funding. Right, and funding is a major challenge because uh, it takes a lot of money, one and a half billion bucks, uh, to 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 take an asset from the lab to the regulatory body. The success of uh, the percentage of success is very low; it's about twenty percent that actually ever make it, and it takes about ten years' time. So, so uh, most people will say to you, funding. I will say that it's actually people that understand the, 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 the biotech evolution, right? Because it's, it's people that will make it happen. It's people that will, that will have the ability to go out there and raise money. But the biggest challenge here in Australia is to get these people from the global setting to relocate them here to Australia and to be able to deliver. Don't forget that innovation has no precedent. So it's very difficult to find experts in new. There's no such thing as an expert in new. We've, we've got a big industry here, a big primary industry that does R&D, but commercializing and developing the asset to that commercial point is a very different value proposition to discovering it. I have to ask you a very key question. If mm. Australia is so good in biotech, yeah. Why haven't we produced great leaders in biotech, apart from maybe Cochlear and ResMed? Well, that is, uh, that is an excellent question. And, and, and I, think, I think given our size, uh, we have created, uh, we, 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 we have a fair share of leaders, right? So something that not many people know is uh, that Australia is responsible for uh, developing ultrasounds. If we have diagnostic ultrasound, medical ultrasound, now it's because of Australia, right? It's the Ultrasonics Institute that we had here that, uh, that basically discovered the use of medical ultrasound. The human papilloma virus and, and Professor Fraser, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have uh, had this discovery. So, so given our size and given the fact that, that, that we're a 200-plus year nation and <clears throat> we're concerned about putting a roof over our head when others were admiring in Europe uh, beautiful statues and works of art in museums, that says a lot. Could we have done better? Yes, we probably could have done better, I think. And we could have done better if, if we travelled more, if, if many Australians, many people from the R&D communities get, got to spend time in, in the States or in Europe and to see how things are, uh, are being done there and then transfer this, this knowledge back, back home. Well, the final question, we're talking about funding. What should yeah. investors look for in biotech? I think they should look for strong IP position, which makes, which, which is, which makes, uh, which is realistic, which is, which is tangible, which addresses uh, a, a disease area, which, which can generate interest, financial interest. 
but then most importantly, they should look at a competent management team. And when I say management team, not just the diva scientists who, who, who has discovered this, but the practical people around that management team, the finance director, the CEO, the chief operating officer, uh, that because it will be very important for these people to communicate the value, the future value of this invention in order to be able to raise capital. Let's not forget, great science alone will not give you a commercialized product. It's the funding, hand in hand, bridging the scientific milestones with the business milestones that will give you success. And of course, I think anybody investing in biotech should always be aware that this is a high risk investment. It's not a low risk investment because everybody tends to correlate success with regulatory approval. And, and let's not forget official statistics will tell you that only two out of 10 inventions will actually get regulatory approval. Well, George, that's fascinating. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leon. Enjoy your day. Thank you. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist, Callum Pickering. Well, Callum Pickering, uh, this week we had Australian wage growth uh, just up over 2.2% and uh, the latest labour force figures are up to 5.3%. What's your assessment of that? Yeah, so lots of labour market figures out this week and it was pretty bleak reading overall. Um, we saw wage growth ease slightly, 2.2% from 2.3%, uh, which wasn't entirely unexpected, but it's still very disappointing given that you know, the big hope for the Australian economy was that wage growth was going to continue to pick up and head towards 3%, and that was going to um, kickstart the Australian economy. On the employment side, of course, we saw that employment fell by around 19,000 people, and that was the worst result we've had in a little over three years. So it seems as though that the labour market across the board is beginning to, to slow down now, which is consistent with what we've seen with the um, broader economy over the past 12 months. Now, that's uh, full-time opportunities uh, were also fell away. I mean, that was also a fall in uh, full-time and part-time work, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a fall in, in both those categories in um, October. And there's been sort of a, a broader decline in, in full-time job gro growth over the, the past sort of six to 12 months. And that's something that we typically see during a, a downturn. We often see often see that slowdown. So full-time jobs has accounted for around 54% of all job creation over the past um, year, just to put that into perspective, um, its historical rate is around 70%. So full-time job creation is, is well below where we would like it to be, and that suggests that the uh, the labour market's headed in the wrong direction. And so, uh, I mean, there, there was 19,000 fewer jobs, wasn't there? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so again, the, the worst result we've seen since early um, 2016. Look, one of the things we need to consider, though, when we, we look at this result is that the, the labour force figures can be quite volatile from month to month. And so it's easy for us to sort of overreact to this one poor month. Um, but we do need to remember that over the past 12 months, the Australian economy has created around 250,000 new jobs, which is actually a, a pretty good result. And while conditions do appear to be slowing, um, it's probably not quite as bad as that, that negative 19,000 result um, suggests it certainly would be surprising if something like that was replicated next month, for example. So, I mean, uh, what's the underutilisation rate? It's uh, I read it some, somewhere about fourteen percent, isn't it? Yeah, just uh, just below fourteen percent, thirteen point eight percent, which is very high by um, historical standards, and it's it's barely improved over the past 
five years, which is one of the big concerns for the Australian economy. Um, underemployment is this issue that sort of emerged over the past five to, to ten years, and it's still a big problem for the for the economy. Basically, the economy just isn't creating the sort of high-quality full-time roles that it did in the past. And as a result, many people are finding themselves in part-time jobs that, jobs that they're not satisfied with. They're working maybe 15 or 20 hours a week when they prefer 30 or 35 hours a week. And this just continues to be a problem for the economy. So, I mean, while lots of jobs are being created, they're not high-value jobs. Would that be right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so we always need to think about this when we look at the overall employment figures. So over the past year, we've had 250,000 new jobs, which is a pretty good number. But just over half of those are full-time jobs. So the numbers aren't quite as, as good as they, they first appear. In an ideal world, we prefer to see around 70-80% of jobs being jobs created being full-time. And that's just not the case at the moment. So it indicates that the, the overall economy is doing you know, a little bit worse than the, the headline employment figures suggest. So, I mean, what does that mean uh, for the RBA? I mean, uh, all the, all the uh, banks are saying the RBA will be cutting rates again in February. What's your view about that? Well, I think it's, it's all but certain that they're going to cut rates again. It's just a matter of when. Um, I think February is currently the consensus view. Um, although, in my opinion, it might be prudent to, to cut rates in December because, of course, the RBA doesn't meet in January. And one of the big concerns I'd have at the moment is that there is this risk that if they don't cut in December and wait till February, the economy could actually deteriorate quite a bit between those two meetings. And so it, it just might make sense for the RBA to, to move a little bit earlier than the market currently expects. But certainly we should expect the RBA to cut again. Um, and it might not just be one cut. It could be several cuts. And I think the risk of quantitative easing and other unconventional measures, I think, becomes greater by the day. And that's certainly been reinforced by the labour force figures we've seen um, this week. Uh, it's it's interesting though because I mean the, the RBA is kind of trapped in a corner because uh, I mean they've been cutting interest rates uh, this year, but uh, they, those interest rate cuts don't seem to have stimulated the economy at all. Yeah, if they've had an impact, it's been relatively minor, and the RBA is aware of this. They've sort of flagged that they believe that monetary policy is losing its effectiveness. In an ideal world, we'd prefer there to be greater fiscal stimulus coming through from state and federal governments for them to do a little bit of the, the heavy lifting and, and support the RBA. Ideally, you want fiscal and monetary policy working in tandem um, to kickstart the economy. And, and right now, that's not the case. Um, the federal government seems to have no appetite at all for um, fiscal stimulus. They remain quite determined to, to run their surplus. Um, and as long as it remains that way, uh, it's going to be left to the RBA to do all the heavy lifting. And that means that they're going to cut and they're going to cut again. They'll cut and they'll cut again, but it's not likely to have much of an impact. Um, it'll have an impact at the margin. So we know that, I mean, there's multiple channels through which monetary policy can affect the economy. One is through household debt and reduced repayments on, on loans. And we, we do see that to some extent. Uh, another one is the exchange rate channel as well. So the RBA would be hoping that by cutting rates again and they can begin to put a little bit more downward pressure on the Australian dollar, which helps um, Australian businesses um, in terms of production. So there's multiple ways that this can have an impact on the economy. What we're seeing so far, though, is that it hasn't had a big enough impact to really get the economy out of its current rut. That said, I think if the RBA hadn't gone forth with the, the three rate cuts this year, I think the economy would probably do, be doing a little bit worse now 
um, than it than it currently is. So I think it is having a, a little bit of an impact, just not as um, much as the RBA would like. On the question of wages growth, I mean, it occurs to me that uh, uh, what about there's, the, uh, there's wages growth and there's income. I mean, people might be getting a lot of work, a lot of some income from the gig economy, like, for example, driving an Uber or from Airbnb, and that wouldn't show up in the wages figure. I mean, it, it should do. I mean, the, the wage price index is a little bit unusual because it calculates changes in wages for a given job. So it's not necessarily the same as changing income for a person. So we do need to, to bear that in mind. Um, but it is the measure that is most closely related with inflation. So it's, you know, it's a, a very important measure of how um, wages and, and income developing. But yes, one of the things we have seen is that more Australians are taking on multiple jobs to make ends meet. But low, low wage growth is having an impact there and it's forcing people to take on secondary jobs as Uber drivers or food delivery um, people in order to you know, maintain their spending habits. And look, if wage growth continues to persist at its current low level, and I think it probably will, then we are more likely to see people, more people, head into those secondary jobs as well. And uh, the reality is wages growth will stay weak because inflation is very low. Yeah, that's right. All indications suggest that wage growth will remain um, very weak for at least the next couple of years. So inflation is one reason why that's the case. Uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia has recently put out a forecast that suggests that wage growth won't pick up at all through the end of um, December uh, 2021 and also the simple fact that the underutilisation rate is, is currently so high it has to improve a great deal in order for wage growth to push above two and a half percent let alone three percent so the current wage situation we have is something that will persist for years to come so the bottom line is uh, what we need is uh, greater fiscal stimulus for both uh, wages and Employment. Yeah, that's right. We just need coordinated policy from federal and state governments um, working with the RBA to stimulate the economy. And until we get that, it's hard to see the economy picking up quickly. Right now, the RBA expects that whatever's going to happen is going to be quite gradual. They don't expect that that big turnaround. So we need something to change in order to, to prompt that swift turnaround to occur. And that's got to be fiscal policy. Well, we'll watch that with uh, great fascination. And Callum Pickering, thank you very much for your time. And thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, President Donald Trump's trade war with China has become a bigger, broader, economic forever war. It's hard to look ahead and see any outcome that undermines that emerging reality. A phase one deal may be in what US officials say is its messy end stages. But that deal if it comes, will be partial and more ceasefire than game-changer. It also doesn't mean a larger peace is nigh. Moreover, there are three large truths that are becoming inescapable. While both the US and China have worked hard to maintain a wall between their trade talks and other political developments, that's becoming harder with each passing week. The events in Hong Kong over the weekend, with police laying siege to a university, are escalating, as are the calls in Washington for US action. The weekend publication by the New York Times of documents detailing the official Chinese campaign against Muslim minorities in Xinjiang will only add to that sentiment. The art of a trade deal is the art of knowing how to exploit the domestic politics of your opponent. It's hard for a dispassionate observer to look at the impeachment inquiry or the weekend gubernatorial election win for Democrats in Louisiana and see strength for Trump. Beijing 
has long been best at misreading American politics, and Trump has been a unique political phenomenon. But the reasons are only growing for China to hold out for elections that are now less than a year away. And the accountancy giant KPMG is not renewing its sponsorship of Prince Andrew's entrepreneurial scheme, Pitch at Palace, in the wake of his much-derided interview in which he defended his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. The Duke of York has been heavily criticised as having shown neither contrition nor sympathy for Epstein's child victims in the BBC news site interview, and his suitability as patron to scores of charities and organisations has been called into question as a result. Buckingham Palace has confirmed that KPMG, a founding partner of Pitch at Palace, a mentorship scheme for budding entrepreneurs, was no longer involved, its contract having ended in October. The accountancy firm refused to comment, but the Prince's relationship with Epstein and Virginia Gifra, formerly Roberts, who says she had sex with the Duke when she was 17, a claim he denies, has been under renewed scrutiny since a billionaire financier was arrested in July. The previously convicted child sex offender killed himself in prison in August. The Palace said a full program of Pitch at Palace events would continue. However, the organisation's webpage listing its supporters, which previously included KPMG, as well as the likes of AirAsia, Bosch, Standard Charter, the Stelios Philanthropic Foundation, Bank of China and Barclays, had been taken down. And the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index was down again last week, falling 1.1% to 109.9. The weakness was predominantly due to the economic conditions component of the index. Current economic conditions fell by 2.6%, while future economic conditions were even more downbeat, falling 4.9%. Both these sub-indices are near their multi-year lows. And HSBC Holdings has more than doubled its forecast for Australian property price increases next year, as low interest rates and looser borrowing rules send buyers flooding back into the market. The bank now expects nationwide prices to rise by 5% to 9% in 2020, up from previously expected gains of 0% to 4%. Paul Bloxham, HSBC's Chief Australia and New Zealand Economist, said in a note on Tuesday, Major cities Sydney and Melbourne are expected to lead the charge, as in the previous boom. HSBC is now forecasting gains of 8% to 12% in Sydney next year and 10% to 14% in Melbourne. The rapid turnaround in the market, where just six months ago the question was how much further prices would fall, comes at a time when the overall economy is weakening. The Reserve Bank of Australia has cut interest rates three times since June in an attempt to boost hiring and investment. But so far, the main impact of the easing seems to have been to push housing prices higher. And Scott Morrison has all but slammed the door on fast-track tax cuts or other panicked reactions in next month's mid-year budget update, seeing the government has already injected $9.5 billion of near-term stimulus into the economy since the May election. Under external pressure to do more to stimulate the economy than he had already indicated, the Prime Minister on Wednesday revealed that $3.8 billion of infrastructure spending has been fast-tracked over the next four years. Of this, $1.8 billion will be spent this financial year and next along with $550 million in extra drought aid, already announced, and the $7.2 billion Stage 1 income tax cuts rolled out on July 1st, that amounts to $9.5 billion of stimulus in two years. In a speech to the Business Council of Australia annual dinner in Sydney, Mr Morrison made it clear that he considers that level of stimulus to be sufficient for now, and that he must also protect the budget returning to surplus. Then Treasurer Josh Frydenberg says the ageing population is an economic time bomb, 
and has signalled the drive to get people in their mid and late 60s to work longer and undertake training to keep in touch with the jobs market as the government confronts long-term pressures to the budget bottom line. Mr Frydenberg used an address to the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia to argue a new dynamic in the way the country's population is ageing will require new policies to ensure the nation's economic heavy lifting is not left to a diminishing number of young people. The government has to release its latest intergenerational report, which will map out the direction of the nation's finances over the next 40 years by March. The latest iteration, heavily criticised for its focus on labour policies, was released by then-Treasurer Joe Hockey, but a suite of promises underpinning it have been ditched. These dump plans included cuts to health and education spending, as well as the proposal to lift the age pension access to 70. The age pension change was ultimately dropped by Scott Morrison soon after he became Prime Minister. Treasury is currently working on the new intergenerational report, which will have to take into account the absence of the ditch policies, as well as substantial demographic changes since 2014. Mrs Frydenberg said that in 2014-15, the number of working age Australians for every person over the age of 65 was 4.5 to 1. Over the next four decades, this is expected to fall to 2.7 to 1. This change, he said, will require a range of policy responses. The Treasurer noted the proportion of people over 65 in the workforce, either with a job or looking for employment, had climbed to 4.14.6% from 12.3% over the past five years, but it would have to grow even higher. And South Australia's big Tesla batteries output and storage will increase by 50% with help from state and federal government. The upgrade is expected to be completed by mid-2020 and provide more security than grid once labelled the Hollywood solution by Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who also likened it to the world's biggest banana or the world's biggest prawn. The expansion will be financed through the federal government's Clean Energy Finance Corporation. French renewable energy company Neoen said it would take the battery's output from 100 to 150 megawatts, with the South Australian government committing $15 million and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency contributing $8 million. And Amazon has teamed up with the Commonwealth Bank, Stockland and news agents to build a network of locations where customers can pick up online purchases rather than have them delivered to their homes. Known as Amazon Hub, the locations include automated lockers in Commonwealth Bank branches, Stockland malls and Victorian Authorised News Agents Association stores and more than 100 counters in news agents. Hundreds of parcel pickup locations will be available by the end of 2019, mainly in New South Wales and Victoria, and thousands will be established across Australia next year. And Cominsure, the Commonwealth Bank's insurance arm, has pleaded guilty to 87 breaches of the anti-hawking legislation and agreed to refund some 30,000 customers $12 million for unfair phone calls. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission announced that between October and December 2014, Cominsure agents unlawfully sold a policy known as Simple Life, despite the customers not requesting marketing information from the insurer. And the financial crimes regulator is taking action against Westpac for alleged systemic and frequent failures to adhere to money laundering laws. Austrac Chief Executive Nicole Rowe said the bank was deficient in multiple areas and failed to report 19.5 million international fund transfers over five years. It alleges over 23 million contraventions of the anti-money laundering laws. The transfers amounted to $11 billion and related to money coming in and out of Australia, mainly to the Philippines and Southeast Asia. Ms Rose said it led to a significant loss of intelligence. Some of the reports related to potential child exploitation risks. 
most were to four of its corresponding banks. The penalty will be determined by the federal court. And ANZ has a plan to challenge tech giants Google and Facebook. The major ASX banks of ANZ, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, National Australia Bank and Westpac are facing increasing pressure from tech players wanting to take a slice of their earnings. Google Pay, Apple Pay and other tech offerings are gaining traction with consumers, taking a little bit of power from the major ASX banks. Facebook Pay will soon be a thing, which isn't related to the cryptocurrency project Libra. Google is looking into ways to offer transaction accounts through Google Pay. But ANZ has a plan and is devising and testing new business models in a lab division with 40 staff. It's investing in seven fintech startups and has also been given the objective of generating revenue in areas adjacent to banking. The fintech investments are Lending, Brickfloor, Valiant Finance, DiviPay, Slip, Data Republic and BUD. The first project that has made it to the public sphere is the One Spot, a service designed to help first-home buyers. But ANZ won't be releasing details of any other projects yet. And more than a 1,000 Woolworths employees in New South Wales have won a pay rise of 16% over three years, more than double the average rate of wage growth. The supermarket giant has agreed to front-load an 8% pay rise for warehouse workers at its Minchinbury Distribution Centre following by annual increases of 4% until 2021 as part of a new enterprise agreement backed by workers on Saturday. The in-principle deal followed mass strikes last week and is the first win under the banner of the newly formed United Workers' Union, a merger of the National Union of Workers and United Voice that has created the biggest blue-collar union in the country. Now, the pay rise stands in stark contrast to the latest wage growth data in the private sector, which shows average increases have dropped to 2.2% and pay rises in enterprise agreements have fallen to 2.8%. Woolworth's sizeable first-year increase is understood to be a response to low pay rises in the centre's last agreement, which saw wages increase by 7.5% over three years. And a $25 billion investment boom in renewable energy project has pushed up wages for renewable jobs, bucking the low wage growth trend in the rest of the private sector. Wage growth in the renewable sector will continue in 2020, with some wages growing by 26%, according to a survey analysing thousands of salaries by recruitment firm Robert Walters. This compares with the latest wage growth figures showing a 2.2% wage rise across the country in private sector wages growing by 0.5% for the September quarter, the lowest result since March last year. Robert Walters forecasts 16,000 professional jobs will be created in 2020 as 103 renewable energy projects are constructed across Australia. Asset managers who oversee the operation of solar, wind and hydro plants once they're fully operational are set to receive the biggest jump of 26%, taking their forecasted medium wage to $175,000 in 2020. Construction managers who oversee the building of the renewable energy plants are set to receive an 18% jump to a median wage of $190,000. And power grid connection managers are likely to see an 11% increase to $200,000. And gender equality is stalling at the top levels of the workplace, experts warn, as a share of female chief executives and board members stagnates and efforts to close the gender pay gap achieve only modest gains. The Workplace Gender Equality Agency scorecard reveals that the gender pay gap closed just slightly in the past year, down 0.5% to 20.8%, and that men still out-earn women by an average of $25,679 a year. The number of women in management roles rose slightly to a 39.4% share, but the number of female chief executives remained flat 
at 17.1% for the second consecutive year. Meanwhile, the number of women on boards inched up one percentage point to 26.8%. And energy giant Alinta is threatening an early closure of one of Australia's biggest coal-fired power stations, as the low cost of renewables would likely make coal obsolete. It's a move that's likely to put it on a collision course with the federal government. Jeff Dimery, chief executive of Alinta, believes the company's largest coal generator will close much earlier than its 2048 deadline. He said the government should explore high-energy, low-emission coal-fired power and carbon capture and storage. Alinta currently doesn't own any renewable projects, but says it has funded the development of significant solar and wind farms. Dimery said the low cost of renewables would likely make coal obsolete. He believes the low cost and increasing reliability of renewables means Alinta's largest coal-fired power station, Loyang B, which supplies around a fifth of Victoria's energy needs, will close much earlier than its 2048 deadline. But the early closure of power stations has been met with fierce condemnation from the federal government. Energy Minister Angus Taylor recently launched a task force to look at all potential impacts of AGL's closure of the Liddell power station in New South Wales. And Woodside is set to become one of the largest owners of native trees in Australia as it rolls out its carbon offset program. Now, climate change is forcing the management and board of the company to examine what the company will look like following the execution of the next suite of projects, including Sangamar in 2023, Scarborough in 2024, Browse 1 in 2026, and Browse 2 in 2027. Earlier this year, Woodside partnered with Greening Australia as part of a mass tree planting exercise. The company is funding the planting of native trees to create large carbon sinks in Australia. And it knows that replacing the energy equivalent of one train of LNG at Pluto in Western Australia would require 60 gigawatts of renewable power to make the hydrogen required for that energy. That is equivalent to solar panels covering the entire Sydney area. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Justin Wastnag, the founder and CEO of Sydney tech startup Vloggy, which is being billed as a Canva of video content production. Having built a platform to allow marketers with no filming skills or experience to crowdsource video campaigns anywhere in the world and create authentic professional-looking video content to help bolster digital marketing efforts. And I'll be talking to Alex Joyner, Chief Economist at IFM Investors, about the outlook for the Australian economy. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 